So we made it to 2014. After all the hoopla, how many of you like are still exhausted from? You've been resting up. Some of you've been all right, good. Um, the um, after all the hoopla, a new year started, and um, and new beginnings, new years are opportunities that I don't think we should miss to reflect a little bit on whether we're really becoming the people we want to become. And as I was thinking about that this week, I realized how much of the Christian life is about reflecting on what matters to God and what it is that we're supposed to be doing for him, what we're supposed to be becoming in the world. And, and when I get around people who are not Christ followers, um, they don't have that same kind of spirit-inspired reflection and self-assessment. So I don't think we should ever miss opportunities like this to quiet ourselves, to kind of shut off all the the distractions and think about what's been going on in us and through us and what does God want to have for new beginnings um, as we begin some new new endeavor. Um, Because you know what? There is a great wisdom and vitality that comes in self-reflection. I read a couple articles this week. I don't know why, um, just popped up here and there. How much um, our cell phones are distracting us from deeper reflection, greater creativity, and how much they wear out our energy. So, um, so one research project, um, they, they, did, they had two people talking with each other, and they had a cell phone within view. It wasn't even ringing. It wasn't, and, and they said they, they evaluated the quality of the, inter- the interaction when there was a cell phone, then when they took that apart, took the cell phone away. And they said the quality of discussion between two people has changed even when a cell phone is within sight. Another, the other article was talking about how when you're, you're doing some kind of work, and he was in, in the workplace evaluating productivity of, of employees, and how much our productivity has slid. Has, has, has decreased because we'll be working away on something and then that message will show we got an email from somebody or our phone will ring and he talked about how switching from focus to one thing to another thing to another thing constantly throughout the day drains our energy and drains our creativity well one of the neat things about being a Christian is that woven into the fabric of the Christian life is this invitation to be still to disconnect from everything and to reflect so that you can listen to God better and so you can listen to your own soul and so you can make changes in your life that, that if you just keep barreling along at 120 miles an hour, you won't make. But when we slow down, we realize, you know what? There's a mid-course correction that I can make here that if I make here in a year, at the end of 2015, I will be a very different person. So I want to talk with you today um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to talk about how we can be significantly different at the end of 2015 than we are right now at the beginning of 2015. Um, Think with, if you would, just imagine um, being a spectator at a race. And I don't care whether it's a 100-yard dash or, you know, a 400-meter or it can be the Boston Marathon or a 5K, whatever. Imagine that you, picture in your head that you're there watching um, a race. You're, the runners are going in front of you. And once you get that in your head, let me ask you a question about what you see when you're watching that race. Do you see any of the runners carrying a suitcase? Probably not. Do you notice any of the runners 
um, going off course and window shopping along the way? Probably not. Probably none of those runners are going to stop and step out of the race to get a beer or to chat with friends. If they're seriously on the race, they are focused on where they are going. And so the title of this sermon is, Have You Ever Seen a Runner with a Suitcase? And um, I don't know whether you know this, but from all of the references that the Apostle Paul makes about sports, we're pretty sure that he would have Xfinity or Fios just so he could have ESPN. We're pretty sure that he would be part of a fantasy football league when we look at all of his references to sports. So in 51 AD, the Apostle Paul was in Corinth. And in Corinth, they had, equivalent to what happened in Olympia, they had the Corinthian Games. And the Corinthian Games were actually, um, they weren't as old as in Olympia, but far, far, far more people came to the Corinthian Games than went to the Olympian Games. As a matter of fact, it was in 336 BC that, uh, to give you an idea of how significant the Corinthian Games was, that's when Greece voted for Alexander the Great to lead them to war against Persia. So huge, significant things happened at the Corinthian Games. Greece is, um, is divided into two parts, north and south, and there's a little four-mile isthmus that connects north and south. Anything that goes from the north of Greece to the south or from the south to the north goes through that isthmus, and that is the isthmus of Corinth. Now there's a canal there, but there wasn't a canal there in Paul's day. Um, Nero tried to build it, but they didn't get till the 12th century. What happened in Paul's day is a ship that wanted to go from east to west to wanted to, because, because it was a long ways to go down around the south, southern tip of Greece. So what they would do on that isthmus is they had logs. They would pull ships up and roll them on logs across the four miles to get to the other side. So everything that moved from north to south or south to north, everything that moved from east to west or west to east, all of it went through Corinth. Corinth was one of the preeminent cities of ancient Greece, and they held the Corinthian Games every two years. Now, if we're pretty sure that Paul watched those games in, in 51 AD when he was there, and if you'd lived in Corinth at that point, 10 months before the games... Realize they're happening every two years. Ten months before the games, the serious athletes showed up and started their training. And so if you had been there during those ten months, you would have gotten a picture of what a dedicated athlete did to compete in the games. And then, you know, a month or so before the games, the less serious athletes would come. The ones that were just showing up for bragging rights, they would show up and they'd, you know, kind of chip in. Um, And then the spectators would show up. So there would have been this incredible contrast if you were in the Corinthian church of of dedicated serious athletes versus the casual athletes versus the spectators. Um, Corinth was also the Las Vegas of of ancient Greece. So what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was the Temple of Aphrodite. We talked about that. Um, Dan mentioned that a few weeks ago. And so the casual athletes and the spectators, sort of like the World Cup or the Super Bowl, um, a lot of them just came for the sex. Okay, they were just messing around, and it was a, it was an excuse for them to party. So you would have, if you'd lived there when Paul was there, you would have seen this contrast. Here's what a dedicated, serious athlete does. This is what the casual athletes do, and this is what spectators do. So let's put the scripture up in front of us and let me read it to you, um, because um, well, I'll try to read that. Can we make that background go away? All right, we'll work on it. Do you not, there we go, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? You know, the casualness here, everybody's running, right? 
All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run so that you may obtain it, so that you may receive the prize. Run with that kind of focus. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it, just normal athletes, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, Paul says. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in verse 24, Paul starts out with this imagery that would have been very familiar to anybody living in um, Corinth. And he says, run the race in such a way as to win the prize. Um, there's, there's a bunch of people sign up for the Boston Marathon to try to win. Then a bunch just sign up so that they can be kind of runners. So they have the bragging rights that they also ran, run in the Boston Marathon. Paul says, be like those athletes who are there to win. In your Christian life, in 2015, he would say, change so that you are focused like a serious athlete running to gain the prize. Because it's okay in the Boston Marathon if you just want to run just so that you can say that you were in it. But what's at risk in your spiritual life is so much greater that it's not okay to be a casual, half-hearted Christian aimlessly wandering through your life because the reward is simply too great. Too many Christians seem to be in the Christian race for the most part because they don't like the consequences if they don't get into it. Too many Christians seem to be in the Christian race as long as it fits their schedule, as long as it's not um, demanding too much. And you can tell who the casual Christians are in the Christian race because when things get busy or hectic, it's their spiritual exercises, their spiritual disciplines that drop off first. Casual Christians are aimless in their spiritual exercises. Casual Christians are easily distracted. Something comes along in the... And, and I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to think of how often... I am alone with God, dedicating time to God, and a text comes in and I pick it up. I just put the most high God, God, the creator of the universe, on hold so I could read a text saying, get milk when you come home. Right? Casual Christians are constantly distracted from their spiritual exercises. Casual Christians window shop on the world as we go through each year of our lives. Casual Christians don't arrange their lives around spiritual training the way that athletes, serious athletes in Corinth, arrange their whole lives around their physical training. And casual Christians just simply refuse to do the effort it takes to reflect and examine themselves and their spiritual disciplines. So I think the Apostle Paul, if he was here talking from this text to us today, would ask this question. In 2015, what kind of Christian do you want to be? 2015, do you want to run to win the eternal prize? Or do you just want to window shop as you go along? Do you just want to be in the race for kicks and giggles? Or are you ready to make a decision that separates you from the casual Christian 
to be one who wholeheartedly follows God. In verse 25, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to gain a crown that will not last. They would get, in the Corinthian games, they got a, a crown of celery leaves, okay? Didn't even last 24 hours before that crown withered, all right? He says, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, we're in the Christian race to get a crown that will last forever. If pagan athletes will put that much effort into passing rewards, how much more ought the followers of Jesus put effort into obtaining glory that will last forever? Now, I made a bit of a reference to this last week, but a bunch of you already made New Year's resolutions. And a whole bunch of them were, you want to lose weight, you want to be at the gym more, you want to be more physically fit. Well, Paul tells Timothy that physical fitness is of some value. But spiritual fitness, that has value forever. Here's the spoiler alert. Eventually we all sag and droop. (laughs) It's going to happen, all right? So are you investing more in what's going to sag and droop and perish and fade? Or are you investing more into what will give you an eternal glory that will never perish or fade and can never be taken away from you. James calls that eternal crown of glory. James calls it in James 1.12, a crown of life. Here's the interesting thing. The crown of life that, that we read of in the scriptures for walking with Jesus faithfully, that's not just something you get someday when you see Jesus face to face. But there is a fullness of life that comes into us when we start practicing faithfulness and spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. It's, it's really kind of weird. Um, you think that, I mean, that whole word, spiritual discipline, you think that disciplines would constrict us? They, they would take freedom away from us? What we find instead is that when we are devoted to spiritual practices and spiritual exercises, what happens is we get more freedom. We get enhanced capability. There's more that we can do than if we just kind of go along as casual, half-hearted Christians. Then in verse 27, Paul says, oh wait, no, I'm sorry, verse 26, Paul says, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Think of a, of, of a boxer and just taking these wild swings. Paul says, I don't do aimless spiritual life. I don't do this wild swinging around whatever spiritual life. He says that he has purposeful activity. And I want you to realize that your spiritual fitness depends on intentional, purposeful spiritual exercise. If you do not engage in spiritual exercise, you will not be spiritually fit. If you do not discipline yourself in spiritual disciplines, your, your, your capacity for life starts to shrink. And that's the opposite of the way that we think it should be. But God says, when you step into, in, in, into obedient practice of spiritual exercise, the Holy Spirit floods into your life and gives you life and energy and capability to be far more than you could be otherwise. So then in verse 27, Paul says, No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's not saying that, you know, he wants to get us all into self-flagellation, okay? But here's what he is saying. 
It's interesting, in the Christian race, your competition isn't the other runners. Paul notes that here. Paul's competition, he realizes, is himself. Your competition in the, in the Christian race is not the people around you. It's what's going on inside of you. It is your carnal, fleshly desires. It is your, your temporal thinking. Your competition is yourself. So Paul says he actually restrains his physical wishes. That's what spiritual disciplines do. They train, they retrain our souls, but they restrain our carnal interests and desires so that we can be what we want us to be. So um, so 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Interesting thing, nobody else can train you to be godly, which makes sense, right? Nobody else can do your physical exercises so you lose weight. You're the only one that can do that. You're the only one that can train yourself to be godly. The good thing about that is that your spiritual fitness is completely dependent on you alone. There are influences, but you have complete ability to to devote yourself to your spiritual fitness. Nobody else can hold you away from that. The dark side of that is nobody else is there to blame. If at the end of 2015... You are still stuck in the same spiritual ruts that you're stuck in in, at the beginning of 2015. That's your responsibility. You know, I might be able to influence it, but God's not going to say, you messed up, I'm going to blame Pastor Bill. He's not going to say, you messed up, so I'm going to blame your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse. When God looks at you, he's going to say, I gave you the ability to shape your spiritual fitness. Why did you not attend to that ability. And 1 Timothy 4, 7 is where Paul says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present and the life to come. So let's talk. What kinds of spiritual exercises are we getting at here? And I got to tell you that there's not any place in the scriptures where you can go and get a list of, okay, these are all the spiritual exercises, okay? As a matter of fact, Dallas Willard has a theory that, that there's not a limited number of like spiritual exercises. Um, there's a vast variety. There's so much variety in them that at, at one point, Dallas Willard says, when you look at, at the, the number of ways that God gives you that you can engage in for your spiritual fitness, you look at how broad that is. Where do you decide to start? And he basically says this. He says, there are some foundational ones that we all ought to be doing. But then you pick the spiritual disciplines that you specifically need. And it's the same thing if you had a physical trainer. If you had a physical trainer, they would watch you do your exercises. They would look at at, at what your goals are. And that your physical trainer, good one, will design physical exercises uniquely for you. You can do the same thing in your spiritual life. There will be some common spiritual practices that we will all do. And I'll talk about those in just a moment. But then after that... You choose spiritual exercises where you need to become more spiritually fit. And so we'll talk about that as we go along. The first one that, that you know, it sounds so basically that we don't even need to say it, but we've got to say it time and time again. Careful, rigorous, um, um, qualitative research has proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is one spiritual practice that is more catalytic than any other practice in your life. And that one is reflecting on Scripture. It is weird how overwhelmingly rigorous research has found 
that if you want to be transformed, if in 12 months you want to be different than you are now, then develop a spiritual practice of reflecting on Scripture. Now, that's not just reading the Scripture, because you can read the Scripture and not reflect on it. It is reflecting on Scripture. Lots of people over the years confess to me, and, and you've heard, you've probably said it yourself, how you wish that you were, were kind of had better disciplines of Scripture intake. You wish you read the Bible more. And here's what I find for lots of people. I find that, that one of the reasons why we don't engage with Scripture more is we have been doing the same way of engaging with Scripture for so long that we're just bored of it. So what I recommend people do is get a wide variety, vary your practices of Scripture intake. If you've been reading large chunks of Scripture for information to figure out the flow of Scripture, and you've been doing that for a long time, then shift and just read small parts of Scripture and reflect more deeply on them. Or vice versa. If you've been reading small sections, then, then read large sections. Here's another way that just a simple way to engage in reflecting on Scripture. Find some really good online devotionals. And, and there are some great devotionals that you can sign up that will blast into your email every day. And there are really good ones that will cause you to read a scripture and then reflect on it. It's just a simple way to do variety. If you've been doing devotionals like that for a long time, then it's probably time for you to stop doing that and go right to the gospels or right to some scripture. Find lots of different ways to engage with scripture because we know that we know that we know there is nothing more catalytic for your spiritual development than reflecting on the scriptures. Um, prayer is another one of those things that we shouldn't have to say, but lots and lots of Christians will confess they, that they don't pray like they wish they did. And so once again, I want to encourage you. There are lots of different ways to engage in prayer. There is intercessory prayer where you just take a list of, of people that you care about, issues that you care about, and you pray through that list. There is abiding prayer where you're going through your day doing what you're doing, but you kind of have this awareness of God. It's, a, it's, it's something that, that you can learn how to do. There's listening prayer where you go and you just, you don't talk to God. You just say, God, I'm going to spend the next five, seven, ten minutes, half an hour. I'm just going to spend this time listening to you. There are lots of different ways to develop your prayer life. What your prayer life is, it is your, your language, your, it's, it's the, the core of your knowing Jesus. So, find ways to develop spiritual practices around prayer in your life. And you don't have to, I mean, there's some people who say, oh, I pray an hour and a half every day, you know, from 6.15 to whatever. Just because somebody else does it that way doesn't mean you're supposed to do it that way. You find the ways to talk with God and Jesus and the Spirit in ways that work, but make sure that you're continually developing. Lots of people do find in this, and I just want to mention this, lots of people find that a, a prayer journal really helps them. If you're kind of stuck in a rut in your prayer life, consider getting a journal and write, either write out your prayers or write the things that you're praying about and date them and then see what God does in response when he answers those prayers. All right, here's another one that, I mean, these, some of them are so basic. Christian community is critical for your spiritual development. That means all kinds of different ways. Being in worship on a weekly basis is, part of that's directed up to God, but a lot of that is directed to one another. The scriptures say that we ought to be encouraging each other daily that we ought to be spurring each other on to faith and good works daily. 
So this isn't a Christian community isn't something that you do on Sundays or you do when you go to your, your community group. The scriptures would say that you ought to have some spiritual exercises or practices that every day you go out of your way to bless or encourage a fellow believer. Every single day. Every single day. And, and you can do that in a ton of different ways. You can just text somebody, you know, an encouragement. You can, can go to breakfast with somebody. You can, you know, pray with somebody. You can, I mean, there's so many ways to develop um, the depth of your Christian community. Here's, we can watch this. I, sadly, and I, I think I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned this before to you. Um, my older sister married an unbeliever. She knew that that wasn't what the Lord would call, but she was desperate. I mean, she actually, I mean, I, my brother and I were both pastors. We both said, Becky, he's not a Christian. Wait till he becomes a Christian. And then marry the guy or don't marry him. And Becky decided to marry him anyway. And he's never become a believer in, you know, 30-something years of us all praying for him. He's still not a believer. What happened to Becky's life is because he wasn't a believer, she stopped being part of regular church community. And I look at my sister three and four decades later, and I see, sadly, a picture of someone who was not shaped by Christian community. And it, it just aches in my heart because she could have been very, very different. In 10 years... If you are committed to Christian community, you will be a radically different person than if you are casual about your Christian community and just kind of show up every once in a while. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but regular gathering together and daily connectedness with brothers and sisters in Christ um, are spiritual practices that transform us. You've heard me talk about this one before, but let me throw it in. Um, Part of being like Jesus is to serve like Jesus served. So, discovering and developing and using your spiritual gifts, finding your holy calling, those are spiritual exercises that each time you each time you say yes to the Holy Spirit when the Spirit says use these gifts I've given to you, each time you say yes, you are being changed and the people around you are being changed as well. So it is a spiritual discipline or practice to use your spiritual gifts. All right, those are kind of common ones that we all ought to be doing. But then there will be other spiritual practices that maybe you should engage in for a season of your life or because of the uniquely way that, that you're, you're put together. Um, we, you, we've talked about it some. Um, not a lot of churches talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual practice that is embedded in the scriptures and in the Christian centuries. Most of the people that you know of that you would call were great Christians had seasons or lifelong practices of fasting. In the early church, um, the early church was encouraged to fast two days a week. On Wednesday and Friday in the early church, if you were a serious Christian, you didn't eat food so that you could train your physical body that it doesn't always get what it wants to get so that you slow down and and you pay more attention to the Holy Spirit. If you've never practiced fasting in any way, then I encourage you to start with like a a daylight fast and and pick a day and and just spend that time where you would have been eating. What I do is every time I, you know, my stomach starts to growl, I turn that into a prayer. Um, and, and 
it'll be really interesting. Um, it's um, Richard Foster says, um, he says, start a practice of fasting and watch what happens. But if you engage in a, a regular weekly discipline of fasting, he says, in two years, you won't recognize your spiritual life because God will have used it to transform you. So you ought to, and, and by the way, for all these spiritual practices, if you're really interested and you don't know where to start, then get, send me a text, send me an email, and I will send you biblical foundations for them. For I have a, I have a, a, a short book that's not publishable yet, but it's, um, it's on Christian practices um, for the spiritual life. And I have like 31 different spiritual disciplines where we look at what's a scriptural foundation, what's the process of learning that spiritual discipline, because every one of these takes time to learn well. And if you're interested in any of these, then, um, then get in touch with me. There's also a spiritual discipline of simplicity. Now, that's not for everybody all the time, but it is one of those disciplines that, that you should probably experiment for a season in your life to see whether it's something that God would call you to on a regular basis. The reason that we say it's not for everybody all the time is that, that, that God doesn't in any way condemn wealth or possessions, okay? The problem isn't that you own stuff. The problem is that your stuff owns you, okay? If you are too closely attached to your stuff, to your money, whatever it is, then maybe one of the spiritual practices you ought to develop in 2015 is the discipline of simplicity, where everything before you purchase it or acquire it or before you try to experience it, okay, because we acquire not just stuff, but we also acquire achievements and, and, um, and accomplishments. Before you set out to acquire anything, you ask, how will this shape my soul? Or how will it make the world a better place in Jesus' name? We're not all called to do that all the time, but most of us are called to do that for certain seasons of our life so that we are, are not just sucked into the way that Madison Avenue says that you never have enough. And don't be deceived. We live in a world that is trying to make you discontent so you will acquire more stuff or you will acquire more activities. And a Christian way to respond to that is to say, I'm going to practice for the next six months the spiritual discipline of simplicity so that I declutter my schedule and my life in every way that I can. Um, there's a classic spiritual discipline of silence. Um, where, and it has two sides to it. The, the main purpose for the discipline of silence is to get you to listen more to what you need to listen to. Because there's a proverb that says, when you open your mouth to speak, you close your ears to listen. Okay? Throughout the scriptures, we see references to this spiritual practice of silence. Two directions. Upwards with God. All right? There is a discipline of coming before God and just being still. And the scriptures say that when we are blabbering at God all the time, that's not necessarily prayer. Okay? So there's quietness to listen to what God has to say. Some of you perhaps in 2015 should take three months and say that I'm not going to talk to God in prayer for the next three months. I will only listen and I will only speak when God gives me permission to speak. All right? So that you listen. But there's also a, a spiritual discipline of silence with each other where we strive to allow our words to be few and full. Most of us are in the habit of blurting out everything that pops into our head, 
And that doesn't do you any favors and it doesn't do the people around you any favors. It is a spiritual discipline to learn to edit your words. To stop justifying yourself whenever you feel like your ego is being dinged. And there are incredible things that start to happen in your soul when you start to, to be silent instead of to speak like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. Okay? Our world is flooded with far too many words because we don't have the self-discipline to edit what comes out of our mouths. When we edit what comes out, we can actually get to the point where our words powerfully bless the world as opposed to our words just, our, our words just adding more noise to the world. And it's amazing to me. Um, and, you know, well, here, real quick illustration. One point God said to me, Bill, I want you to pri- learn the spiritual discipline of silence. Sure, fine. When do you want me to do that? He says, I want you to do it on the days that you're fasting. I want that to be a day where you, you try to, to limit the number of words that you speak. By the way, if you do this, please let your spouse know, okay? Just so she's not wondering why you gave her the cold shoulder. By then, I was smart enough to let Marla know. And the Lord said, okay, I want you to do it on your day that's fasting. I said, fine, my fasting day is Tuesdays. And so I, I said, I'm going to learn the spiritual practice of being still and only speaking if I really feel like the Lord is urging me to. And then after I made that commitment, it dawned on me, I may have shared this with you before, that Tuesday was staff meeting for my church. There were 10 pastors of the church I was at at the time. And Tuesday is when you could influence where the church was going in staff meeting. And for a year, God said, no, Bill, you stop doing that so that you learn that the world isn't supposed to bend to the things that you think it's supposed to become. You're getting in the way of what I want to happen. So um, that may be one of the practices for you um, in 2015. Solitude is, Dallas Willie calls, spiritual solitude. He says that is the foundational spiritual practice for every other one. He says if you don't know how to be alone with God, then you don't know how to do anything in the spiritual life. Yet it's strange, isn't it? How hard it is for us to discipline ourselves just to be with God. Everything is a distraction. Everything comes in and, and tips us off of that time with God. Why do you think Satan would do that? Because there is such power in your communion with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that Satan will do everything he can to distract you. And there is a spiritual discipline of solitude. Um, Some of you probably this year ought to do a two-day retreat where you go off someplace alone and just get away from the, the crowds and the noise. Don't even take your phone. Don't take your computer. And you just spend time with God. I've talked to people over the years who have done two-day or three-day or four-day retreats with God, and it changes the trajectory of their lives. Um, so this, um, you know, about a week and a half ago, as I was thinking through 2015, I said, all right, Lord, what do you want me to make sure I put it in my life? And I sensed the Lord say, I want one day a month, which is mine. It's not yours. It's not the church's. It's not any place else's. You're supposed to leave everything and just show up with me and see what happens. So I went through and I put a day a month into my schedule. Um, and guess what? If you call me on that day, it'll go to voicemail. Um, and I'm, if I answer your text on that day, you're supposed to smack me later. All right. There's a spiritual discipline um, frequently called secrecy. 
is from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 says that there is a spiritual practice of doing good deeds and not trumpeting it so that people will see it. It sounds like such a simple spiritual discipline, but when the Lord told me to start practicing this, I found out how hard it was to do good things and not tell other people so they would praise me for it. Spiritual discipline of secrecy trains us to live our life for the audience of God alone and not to depend on what other people are saying about us. It was so weird. I would like put the dishes in the dishwasher and I realized that I really wanted to mention it to Marla so she would say thank you. And I realized how much I was dependent on what people thought of me and how I was more focused on what they were thinking than on what God was thinking. And here's one of the things about the spiritual discipline of secrecy. God says, you are not to tell other people about your good deeds so that you learn to depend on my praise alone. And there are ways that you can learn that spiritual practice. Um, There are a bunch of spiritual disciplines around the whole area of our sexuality and sexual purity. And women, you ought to get together and talk about this. Guys have to get together and talk about this. But if we neglect spiritual practices and spiritual exercises around our sexual being, then we will be undermined. And it's it's weird how Satan does it. Because your sexuality is so, so much a part of the core of who you are that if Satan can break that, he can break everything else that comes out of that. And most of us have had times when, when we've been broken in the area of our sexuality in some way And it influences everything else in our lives. Which means that we ought to develop spiritual practices around sexual purities. Guys, you ought to have another guy that that you talk to on a weekly basis who asks you about sexual purity. You just ought to. Um, Women, you ought to be talking with one another about how you are guarding your femininity and how you are, are fully expressing who God created you to be in your gender. Guys, we've got to do that for our masculinity. It's time for us to stop letting the world and everybody else shape our sexuality. It's time for us to own it. And you know what? When we, when we start to, in the church, be reflective in spiritual practices around sexuality, then we'll actually have a message to say to a world that is so gender-confused and, and sexually crazy that, that it, it's, it's destroying our culture. But we've got to start with our own spiritual practices. All right. These are the kinds of things I'm talking about. I don't know what spiritual exercises and practices you ought to weave into your life in 2015, but I'm pretty sure that if you ask the Lord, he'll tell you. If you want other ideas, email me, okay? By the way, if there are a whole bunch of people who want to learn this spiritual discipline of of simplicity together, then we'll link up and we'll do some discussion groups and I'll throw scriptures at you. Or if you want to learn fasting, if you want any of the spiritual disciplines that we've mentioned, I don't know which ones you're supposed to do, But here's what I do know. Aimless spiritual activity is like a runner in a race meandering and doing window shopping or getting a beer or chatting with friends. And in the Christian life, we will not thrive if our spiritual exercises are aimless and haphazard and half-hearted. So I want to encourage you. You can't learn 20 spiritual practices in 2015. But... You could learn two or three or four, and you will be radically different at the end of the year if you will do that. So, my challenge for you this week is spend some time and ask the Holy Spirit to show you 
what he would like you to do intentionally through 2015 for your spiritual exercises. If you're confused about it, you're not sure, get together with Christian friends, blast an email to one of the pastors, talk to us on the phone, and we'll help you through that. But I think most of you could connect with God and say, God, what do you want me to weave into my life as daily or weekly or monthly spiritual practices in 2015 so that we can receive the crown of righteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. And I pray that someday you will all be able to say this. Paul writes and says this. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And he says, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. I pray that you will receive a glorious crown of righteousness when you see Jesus face to face because you have been serious and devoted to the spiritual exercises that transform you and then transform the world through you. Let's pray. Father, as Hebrews 12 says, we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. And then it goes on to encourage us to deal with the sins and to deal with everything else that entangles us and to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Father, would you help each of us today to put an end to aimless spiritual, the aimless Christian life where we're just boxing and throwing wild punches? Would you help us like Paul to have purposeful spiritual practices. Whatever those may be, would you help each of us make a commitment in this week and maybe over the next couple weeks and then would you help us be faithful to that commitment because in the Corinthian races, people didn't train for the race when they showed up. They trained for 10 months before the race. Would you help us to enter into season of training so that we're ready for what you want to fulfill in us and through us by the time we get to the end of 2015. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this sermon, you'll hear this message from me constantly. Um, It wasn't until I was 42 years old that I started reflecting on the role of my spiritual exercises in my life. I'd grown up in the church, so I grew up reading the scriptures, memorizing scripture, talking with other people about Christ, all those things, you know, worshiping in community, all those things. But it wasn't until I was 42 that I realized that this was the pivotal way that God would shape me. And it was through interaction with the week that I spent with Dallas Willard. So I wanted to share this with you so that you'll start decades before I did. Because I think that there are greater places that you will go because you are devoted to run this race. So as Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. Let me just read the first two verses from the text. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. I pray that you will have a crown of great glory. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only wise God,
be honor and glory forever and ever in us and through us that we might touch the world for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year, everybody.